Welcome to Jumpstart Your Joy. I'm your host, Paula Jenkins. I invite you to join me as we explore how inspiring people have chosen joy in their lives and what they have to share with us about how to jumpstart joy in the world. Plus, how do we follow our own hearts, find work that lights us up while mindfully noticing the role that joy plays in our own journey. Hello and welcome to episode 60. This is Paula Jenkins. I'm a life and career coach and your host for Jumpstart Your Joy. Today, I have an amazing interview with Matt Marr. He is the host of the podcast, The Dear Maddie Show, and he's a stand-up comedian, narrative therapist, a coach for actors, and one of the founders of Camp Brave Trails, which is a summer leadership camp for LGBTQ youth. First, before we get to the interview, I want to give you a warm welcome and thank you so much for listening. If you want to follow along with the show notes on this particular episode, you can find them on the website at jumpstartyourjoy.com slash episode 60, the number 60. And if you want to subscribe to the show, Jumpstart Your Joy is on all of the major podcasting syndication spots, including iTunes, Google Play Music, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, and Player FM. If you're new to podcasting and you have an iPhone, you can head over to the little purple icon for podcasts and you can search for Jumpstart Your Joy there. You can subscribe and then each week you'll get the new episode delivered right to your mobile device. You can do that for any podcast if you're if you're new to the genre. <laughs> so I have an exciting announcement for this week. I do have a brand new free email course that you can find over on my website. It's called Joy Plus You. It is a three-week class, and it walks you through how to get reacquainted with joy in your life. It's a lot of fun, and I'm getting a lot of really great feedback and emails back from people saying they just love it. So if you go over to the website, jumpstartyourjoy.com, you'll see an image of a happy puppy in a birthday hat on the right-hand side of the homepage, and it says Joy Plus You. Just put in your name and your email address. You'll get your very first email with the first lesson. I look forward to having you join me. And now for the interview with Matt Marr. So Matt and I hit it off right from the start. And I think you guys are going to love this interview. Matt shares his early love of story and storytelling and how he discovered his passion and muse in being a narrative therapist. His work with Camp Brave Trails is truly inspiring. And I just love that he's working with a group that creates a camp for LGBTQ youth. He and I talk a lot about how camp can provide young people with empowering and formative experiences. I was a camp counselor and director for several years at a camp here in California, and we just really bonded over this fact that camp can really change people's lives. And he talks about how the week or two at camp often creates something that is on the very first time that these LGBTQ youth have really felt embraced for who they truly are. Matt and I also talk about how well-meaning and LGBTQ-friendly people can start a conversation around the topic, even if they feel kind of uncomfortable. And he shares about his work with bullies and bullying. And throughout, Matt shares about how he's followed his muse and joy and how that can lead to a multi-passionate breakthrough life that inspires and empowers others. So here's the interview with Matt. So welcome to the show. Today, I am so excited to have Matt Marr of the Dear Maddie Show. I am so glad to have you here, and I can just tell this is going to be one wild ride for both of us. <laughs> welcome, Matt. Hey, welcome. Thank you. I feel like it's 1045 in the morning. Should we have done this in the afternoon so I could drink? <laughs> I think we might. I feel like we might need some wine. <laughs> <laughs> Yay! Well, do you, would you like to tell us about what you loved most as a child or in school, what were your early sparks of joy? Uh, my early spark of joy, and I'm going to say this, preface this and say that a lot of times I'll use the word muse. And for me, joy and muse are interchangeable just because I am an actor. I'm an artist. Um, I'm a therapist. I do life coaching with a lot of actors. And so, and I teach a class about kind of connecting with your muse. And so for me, that's connecting with my joy. So I have like a very vivid memory of the first time I kind of knew what what I felt like, you know, God, the universe, whatever you believe in, wanted me to do in life. And that was when I was in, I was about, 
I was six years old, and I'll remember it was an afternoon. I grew up in southern Oklahoma. I mean, I still, it's so vivid to me. I remember sitting on, like, our tan, very 70s carpet in this, like, big, with, like, this big box of a TV, and the Disney Channel was on, because that's when you used to pay for it. And yeah. um, I begged my parents to pay for the Disney Channel, because I loved it. So I was watching the Disney Channel, and they were showing, one of the reasons I love the Disney Channel is because back then they showed old movies and a lot of musicals. And so I'll never forget, like, in the, the afternoon sun was kind of like the way our windows, the sun was setting and the sun, it was like that golden hour. Yeah. And it was like we had the blinds, so it was making the lines like on the carpet. And I was kind of just calming. I've been playing outside and I was just calming down. And so I, I turn on the TV to watch TV and I think I'm drinking like a Dr. Pepper. And then just all the blue, like right when I turned the digital channel, they said, now the musical Oklahoma. And I'm like, oh, I've heard of that. I've heard people talk, even as a little kid, especially in Oklahoma. You're like, what is this about? Mm. And I wasn't six. I was eight. I'm sorry, eight. And um, and then I'll never forget just like the overture started. And I thought it was great. But then I'll just the camera pans and you see these cornfields. And then all of a sudden I see this man riding on a horse like through this corn. And he starts singing, oh, what a beautiful morning. And it just like, I literally feel like the world stopped revolving and that it just kind of, I went, oh, this is what I want to do for the rest of my life. I need to do something. I need to do that. And it kind of, and I didn't need to do exactly that, but that at that point was when my muse, that's what my muse was like, yes, this is, this is what, this is what spoke to me. So yeah, that was a, that's my very vivid memory that. That is so cool. I love what a what a storyteller you are as well. Just the the details that you both remember, but that you can recount to us too. It's, it's just southerner in me. We got <laughs> that's awesome. That's, we we got to remember the details, I guess. Yeah, no, that's funny. I, as you were speaking too, if if listeners um, if they listen to the Fly Lady episode, she's also a very she's a southerner and is an amazing storyteller. So <laughs> I, I uh, I'll link that one up, but. Um, it is, it, yeah, it's a thing in our uh, stories have been, I mean, again, talking about joy, that is another, it's so funny, as you said that, I just, you know, my other moments of experiencing pure joy is I remember, so my, all my dad's siblings, my mother's brother lived like, he lived in Houston, we grew up in a town called Ardmore, uh, or actually Lone Grove, Oklahoma, which is about an hour south of Oklahoma City and an, an hour north of Dallas, right about 30 minutes from the Oklahoma-Texas border, right in the s- south central part of the state on I-35, and um but my dad grew up, born, raised there, still lives there to this day. My mom doesn't. Um, but I remember we would, all my dad and his siblings lived close together. Like, literally, we lived down the street. My Aunt Peggy lived up the street. My Aunt Darla lived over the block over. And my Uncle Andy lived just, like, in a house, like, three blocks away. Like, they were all in this vicinity. So we would, I would all, I grew up, I would have a birthday party and have ten cousins there. Mm-hmm. So um, we just kind of grew up, which was wonderful. But probably one of my favorite memories of joy is I remember we would go up to my Aunt Peggy's house because she had the bigger house and like a bigger dining room. And it would be a day usually she would have in the summer, she had a pool. So we all the family would go up there. We we would eat, cook out and have the pool. And then when it, the sun would start to set, I was the baby. I was the, the youngest of all the cousins. Mm-hmm. So the older cousins would go and do their cool teenager things. But I, because I was younger and there wasn't anybody really close to my age, I would just sit on my mom's lap and she would let me have small sips of the coffee my Aunt Peggy would make. And it would have so much <laughs> cream and sugar in it. And I would just listen to them tell stories and just laugh and crack each other up and tell the same stories. But still, <laughs> the way they told them that and just sitting on my mom's lap or my dad's lap, that's probably one of my favorite memories. I never, I haven't thought about that in probably 20 years since you, look, what, look what you're bringing up, Paula. <laughs> Lord, you're going to make me cry. Oh, it's very sweet. Yeah, I love it. And I love that the golden hour seems to be very memorable. I love that, that period of time too. Like photography during that time, like anything oh, yeah. with that golden light. It's oh just, yeah, yeah. That's, that's when I love to meditate. I don't know why mm-hmm. I meditate easier than It's just like a time for me. Yeah, interesting. I love it. Yeah, thank you for sharing that. I love the idea of you sitting there listening. Because you're right, like groups of families, they tell the same story again and again. Like I remember my grandfather would tell the same story about getting his dog out of the canal. That was. So what is it that you do now? You hinted a little bit, but what do you do and who do you work with? I do I do a lot. Uh, I, a lot of little things and hopefully it amasses something. <laughs> 
So my master's is in clinical psychology. So a couple of things that uh, I, well, last, not this summer, but the summer before, I founded a summer camp, uh, a founding director for a summer camp called Camp Brave Trails. And it's a leadership camp for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, and uh, queer questioning youth ages 12 to 18. Um, Yeah, which has been really, really I mean, that's actually been amazing and not yeah. the, and not the way that people go, oh, my gosh, this coffee is amazing. But like actually amazing seeing miracles kind of happen in front of my face of the resiliency of youth. Um, but also so I started that and that took a lot of my time. And then I this year I stepped down as a director because, I mean, luckily, knock on wood, acting stuff has just kind of picked up for me more. So I do a lot of commercial acting. Mm-hmm. And that's been going well. I do stand-up comedy, which stand-up comedy doesn't pay diddly, but commercials do. So that's actually what enables. So I do that. And then I also do um, I do coaching for a lot of not just actors, but for creative types in general. You know, I really I read a book about probably four years ago, three years ago called The Artist's Way. It's by. Mm, yes. I think it's a Julia Cohen who wrote that Cameron Cameron. Yeah. Julia Julie, Cameron. Julia Cameron wrote that book. And that really, again, that really influenced me because it, uh, it, uh, it, again, the type of therapist I am as I'm a narrative therapist, meaning we look at the life kind of through a story metaphor and it's all about externalizing things. And which I think works well for me because I think we all internalize everything, but especially when you're a gay kid, a feminine gay kid who's obsessed with Wonder Woman in Southern Oklahoma, mm. you internalize a lot of negative things that aren't necessarily who you really, they weren't what you thought you were to begin with, but you internalize other people's perceptions and language and ideas. Yeah. So it, narrative therapy works really well is that it's all about let's externalize all that. And we kind of, between the externalization, we put the problem where it seems like it's outside of you instead of inside of you. And between that space of between yourself and the problem, that's where we can find change. So, but yeah, so I do a lot of coaching for actors with that, with, with reading the Julia's book and doing the artist's way and kind of seeing, oh, there really is this muse and this artist that I'm in touch with and I often forget about it. Yeah. And that really led me to, um, to starting, my, starting the podcast, to the Dear Maddie Show, which that came out of that book. And also I had a really bad friend breakup business partner and I was just kind of devastated after that and a little bit what do I do I just need to you know what do I always want to do and again one of the things that kind of gave me joy was as a kid I would I would tape the Oprah Winfrey show because most you know most yes. boys in Oklahoma do that Paula uh, <laughs> yeah <laughs> uh, then they run home to watch it um, but anyway so I loved watching that show because that's where I saw myself I saw myself in other people and and I saw a story that related to this, again, the outside story that I kind of believed, even though my parents and still are very supportive, very loving of me, mm-hmm. but still growing up in the buckle of the Bible Belt, I kind of thought that I knew that I was different and probably gay, but I, I figured that probably I was going to either grow up and become a woman, which there's nothing wrong with trans, being transgender, but I mean, that just mm-hmm. didn't fit for me. That's what I thought I I'd have to be like a drag queen or like what they were called, what people called them back then, like a transvestite. That's what I thought. And I thought, that's not me. And I thought that no matter what, I would get AIDS and die. And no matter what, I would go to hell. And that was kind of like my reality. And even though my parents didn't tell me that, but the community around me was. And so then suddenly I saw somebody on Oprah Winfrey, a guy talk about his life and how he has a boyfriend and how they have a dog and they want children one day. And he's saying this like in the mid nineties because I'm 37 and I'm hearing this as like, you know, late elementary, early middle school kid. And I'm going, well, wait a minute. That's the kind of life I want for myself. That was again, something I always wanted to do, but then was kind of too scared and fearful to do it. And I kind of let life happen to me. And then again, when I had this friend breakup four years ago, I using that book, the artist's way, I thought, what is kind of like the root of, muse for me artistic joy what's that root and I thought I really just want to have a talk show and so I thought well I'll just do it from my living room because <laughs> why the heck not and that's kind of how my podcast was born the Dear Maddie show oh wow I love it I, and gosh there's so much there I mean I want to ask about the camp and and some of the you know stories and, and messages that you've gotten from that and sugar and, we wow. can talk about whatever you we got yeah <laughs> soak up right there like and and then also just just growing up and seeing like kind of the importance of having that I mean Oprah but it could have been 
anything for anyone, but that, that moment of recognition that, hey, that person is like me and these other messages that I'm hearing about who I might be don't fit. Mm-hmm. And there's, there's the person that I would, that's, that's exactly what I want. And then how do I go and get it? So mm-hmm. and maybe those two questions, maybe those two kind of observations are really, really tightly intertwined that that's also what you're doing with the camp. Is, yeah. I was just thinking that they're yeah. similar. Do you want to talk about that a little bit? I've, Kind of the vision of Brave Trails, and if people are interested in that, they can go to bravetrails.org. Um, and it is, it's a nonprofit organization. So, uh, which that in itself, Lord help us. Start <laughs> Lord. Um, in the late 2000s, like 2000, I went to grad school in 2007, but before that, 2006, mm-hmm. 7, 8, 9, that's when a lot of the suicides were happening to LGBT youth. And that's really when bullying really kind of blossomed. And one of the things that was so wonderful that came out of that was uh, Dan Savage did, uh, who has, who he has a podcast called the, what is that, Savage Love? He started a campaign uh, called It Gets Better, which I don't know if you've heard of that. And it's a YouTube campaign where people go online and on YouTube talk about either a time they almost thought about committing suicide or when they did try to commit suicide and it didn't work. And they got really famous people like Tim Gunn from Project Runway talked about it. And at first it was a lot of people who were LGBT, but then it just kind of became people in general just talking about suicide. But what was really great about that and really powerful, and I have some campers and kids that I work with that credit the reason they didn't commit suicide were because of some of those videos, which is truly amazing in that. But Again, there's this kind of message to LGBT, you know, to the, I, I just say rainbow a lot of time because I feel like it gets everybody. But to yeah. rainbow youth, it's kind of this message of you're okay, you're fine just the way you are, which is great. We love that message. And at Brave Trails, we kind of wanted to take that another step further and say, you're actually, yes, you are fine the way you are, but actually, you're incredible. Actually, mm-hmm. you have the ability to impact your community to be a change maker, to be an influencer, and really change the world. And, and so we thought, what's a way to do this? And, you know, the other co-founders that kind of started with, they had had camp experience. I went to an arts camp, which in Oklahoma, going to an arts camp totally saved my life. And again, that brought like a joy to me. And I went to a place called the Oklahoma Summer Arts Institute in at Quartz Mountain. And it was Again, five years that completely changed my life. And um, so camp was important. We knew we wanted to do that. And then with Break Trails, though, we knew that, again, I know the power of group therapy compared to individual therapy. So many people are afraid of group therapy, but really, A, you should go. B, it's cheaper. Um, <laughs> yeah. It's so powerful to see yourself in someone else. And so with Break Trails, that's really what a lot of it is about. It's a lot of everything we do is through a leadership lens. So we do the traditional camping activities, but we also do we have a drag program and we have a uh, LGBT history class. And like, like I taught a workshop about with me and a friend because my background, my undergrads in opera and musical theater. And that's what I was a musician uh, for many years. Well, I guess that's still am. But we uh we I did a workshop about like Judy Garland and Barbara Streisand and Ma Rainey and why like these not just why there's there's a reason why especially gay men but the rainbow community loves these people that kind of spoke up for us and these kids don't are just thinking oh I don't I just think people like Judy Garland just because she was pretty and talented or whatever we're like no you don't understand like what they did for the history so it's that kind of stuff that happens at camp so it's we're giving them, we're letting them know that they have like a larger community, a larger history that they don't know about. And then the fact that they're able to be in a space where they can truly be themselves and not only be supported, but be celebrated for being the type of person or the, or showing up as a type of gender or dressing the way they want to dress. It, it's enormous. No matter what workshops we plan, just the fact that they're able to be with kind of their tribe and in their tribe to say, oh, we love that you want to do drag or we love that, you know, uh, every kid we do service projects like through the week we develop a service project that they take back to their community. So like one kid, they didn't think this would be a cool idea, but they but through the support of other campers, they started, I think, in San Diego area, they started a clothing drive for trans kids. So that way, when they transition to another gender uh, that they they have clothes to wear that are either feminine or masculine and they don't have because a lot of them can't go out and just buy new wardrobes 
Oh, that's powerful. Yeah. yeah. That gives me goosebumps. Like, yeah, that is too. so awesome. Yeah. So it's been, so it's, I mean, again, like I said, it's like truly amazement in front of my eyes. And so to, to see that is, it, it really is, it's the power of just all they needed to do was someone literally to give them the space to say, oh, yeah, that's awesome. I have a similar story as well. And then they go, oh, okay, I can do this. Yeah, that that is so powerful and so beautiful that you are uniquely, I mean, you as a person and then probably the other directors as well, obviously, they have the experience, but like that you have that really nice through line of like storytelling and acceptance and how do we encourage people and lift them up and show their, you know, their strengths. Exactly. Um, yeah, that's really amazing. Um, exactly. How many years have you guys? Is it its second or third year? We just finished our second year, and yeah, and credit to them. You know, I'm a I'm a very active, but I'm a volunteer now. Just because, yeah. like I said, but um, I you know credit to Jess and Kayla and Ryan uh, and Kobe and Natasha because they're they're really the, the ones that are making it work. But yes, we did a year two or a week two summers ago, and then this summer we did two weeks. And, wow. and next week we're going to do well. We do two sessions. We're, they're going to we're going to do a one two week session and then one week session. So that'll be three weeks collectively. But it's been just such a it's just mm-hmm. cool seeing you know kid, the kids, especially the second year. That was different. Of we you know kids that were kind of shy the first year. <laughs> yeah. And they came back, and in my head I'm thinking I don't know why they came back. It didn't seem like they had a good time. And then they come back, and they're a 100 percent different person. And their parents tells us. Oh, they came back from camp, and I couldn't get my kids to shut up anymore. And they're so, <laughs> they were so excited, and they they go to school and they realize. They, one kid said, "I realize I really like talking to people, and I really like getting involved, and I learned that at camp. And so I did that all during school, and they had the best school year. And you're like, <laughs> yeah, you're like wow. if a bus if a bus hits me now, it's okay. Take me, Jesus, because I did something, you know." <laughs> yeah, well, and it's so interesting because I was the camp director for several. Oh, I mean, cool. Growing so up. Yeah, and so I've seen that, and it is really special when a child understands that, like, one, there's something about the independence of having been away from family, friends, and other people that have put, I mean, really, any sort of label on you. To get away from that and just be like, ooh, I could be anyone I want to be? What is this? It's it's so foreign to me that we, people wonder why their children don't necessarily succeed in college when they have kids at home their whole lives until they're 18 and then they just send them off and it's the first time they've ever been on their own. Yeah. Yeah. And you know, the national camping association itself is really trying to, and we did this a lot of brave trails that camping's not just fun and it's not the magic of camp. Yes, there is a magic of camp, but it really is. It's really about developing 21st century skills of relating to people, especially now where so many younger youth are graduating high school and they're so used to technology and doing mm-hmm. everything from a technology perspective, whereas camp, it's not about that. And so, you know, they're having interviews and things with bosses that are in their 40s and 50s and 60s and they're wondering why they're not connecting and not relating. Sure. And so yeah. camp really brings in, it's, I think it's such a viable skill. Yeah, and especially because then you're not being thrown in at the first day of freshman year or whatever that is for you, whether that's, you know, moving out and starting a job, you're not being thrown into a brave new world of like, oh, I have to live with somebody. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. You get that. Yeah. Yeah, that's awesome. Well, and I know you've done a lot around bullying and and I will say, um, I, I don't know if it's appropriate for me to call them uh, or call people a rainbow. <laughs> yeah, sure. You call them I don't want to appropriate it if it's not appropriate. No, it, it's so weird. You know, I often use, and I'm trying to be, I'm trying to watch myself, I often use the word queer because okay. that's become popular again. But then you have to be careful because I'm 37. So people that are, I find, in their mid-30s to up, that's a real triggering word for them. Mm-hmm. Because yeah. that was a negative connotation. Whereas our youth, that's pretty much the word they're using to define themselves. Interesting. And now even in academia, a lot of LGBT history is actually being called like queer history, queer theory. So it, the word is being reclaimed, but it's, I still want to be sensitive to that because I ran a senior men's group. And so I remember just like the word fag or sissy or anything else for some people or the N-word or whatever. So for some people, the word queer is, you know, they, the last thing they heard before they were beaten to death. So that's, you know, I always... So the reason I bring that up is I think that, especially, too, with the gay rights, LGBT movement, it's still so new, and it's still transitioning so much, especially with the emphasis on what's happening with, 
the transgender community right now that vocabulary is still being defined. So, yeah, yeah it's, a, it's, it's even hard for me, and I have a degree in it, and I work at freaking gay camp, and we're still like we show up to camp, and we're like, oh, well, we can't use this word this year because now yeah. it's not what they use. So, yeah. Just well, like, I mean, that's interesting to hear from from inside the community um, that it's even it's confusing to you because I think as as someone who is you know welcoming and, and inclusive and all of that, like I also am very sensitive to that thing where I don't want to step on anybody's toes and say the wrong thing. So then I think. I mean, you probably know how that goes. And sometimes people just go, I don't know what to say, so I'm not going to say anything. So I don't know. Maybe that's a great question, too, is like, how does someone approach if they want, you know, they really are curious and they want to be inclusive and accepting, and but they're a little bit, they don't know what to say. Yeah, I think it's all about, I think it's all about your intention. Mm, and yeah. like a great question is pronouns. Like I have on my email, mm, yeah. I, I have a simple thing on my email when I send people in email it says Matt you know my little signature that says Matt Marr Dear Maddie Show whatever or Dear Maddie Show dot com my website and then under it says pronouns colon he slash him and mm-hmm. I put that on there just because that's a very simple way of letting people know that are that are LGB but also especially T or uh, genderqueer or whatever to let them know that hey that's something I'm aware of that our pronouns um, tell that we choose it's not necessarily the pronoun you're giving with and I want to respect what pronoun you want to be you want to be addressed as so that can be a simple question just for anyone whether they're homosexual heterosexual I think it's good just to like to think about and then that said I have some people like well I you know I went to somebody and I know they're the trans and I asked them what pronouns they prefer to and they got really offended by it and I well then that person's just an asshole (laughs) because sometimes Sometimes you're just whether, and that's not even like a, a queer thing. Sometimes you're just trying to be. The, some people are just jerks, yeah. so that's okay. And but ninety nine percent of the time, anytime I've approached somebody with that question, and I have that intention of truly want to respect them, that's met with a genuine respect. And even at camp, you know, a lot of the kids love that finally for the first time in their pro their life, their pronouns are expe- are, are respected. And it's not just she and him, but also a lot of the people that are identifying trans or using the pronoun they and them, which, oh, yeah. which mine, which mine kind of freaks me out because the English nerd in me is like, no, but it's plural, but it's, so you're trying to figure that out. But at the same time, like, you know, I was making an announcement once and I was talking about a kid and I was like, and he did it. And the whole group again, they went, they, and they just, but it wasn't like a shaming. They just, yeah. and I went, oh yeah, they, and they realized that it's important for us and they know my intention. So it's always okay to be spoken about. Yeah. Yeah. I noticed that in your email signature and I loved it because it, it does. It very quietly says it sends a message of you are of that community. Yeah. Or an ally. So, you know, it's just it's huge to because that's what with any civil rights movement, nothing and the same with what has happened with gay marriage in this country. Mm. Nothing would have happened without the majority giving us a hand. Yeah. Like, like Black Lives Matter is not going to progress unless pe- unless everybody thinks whether, however you want to address it, you feel like that needs to be something you want to do something about or connect with community about. Yeah, I love that you brought that up, too, because it really does take everyone, what, everyone wanting to be an ally, even if we don't know how to help, even if we don't know what that means, but re- recognizing in that case that, yes, Black Lives Matter, and it's on it's on me, it's on everybody to act accordingly and speak out and and be that person, not just yeah. say that thing. Exactly, yeah. it's like for women with equal, with pay equality for women, which I can't believe we're still freaking talking about that. <laughs> Amen on that. Yeah. But let's be, and I don't mean this in a misogynist way, but that isn't going to have change unless ninety percent of the CEOs, which are males, make a decision that in their companies. They want this to take action on this. Mm-hmm. That's when a lot of that change is going to happen. And, and women need men to support them in that. And that, and that's just, that's just, that's just a fact to me. Yeah. So anyway, yeah. sorry. Soapbox, nope. stepping off, stepping off. <laughs> it's fine. It's a great soapbox. We don't, uh, yeah, there hasn't been a lot of soapboxing on, on the show, but I love it. I think it's good. I think we all need to, yeah, wherever we can mainstream some of these things and, and pull the marginalized, and I mean that respectfully, but into the center. I mean, that's where the change happens. Yep. So 
kind of along those lines because we were we were headed toward the bullying question. Oh, sorry, gay gay. I don't know. What do we need to know about bullying? Is maybe a great place to start. And then the the next piece would be like, and how do we do something about it? How do we we know it's wrong, but how do we help? Well, so you know that's actually how Brave Trail started. It started so one of the other found, uh, founders, her name's Jessica, and we know each other because we both were getting our masters at the same time at Antioch uh, in psychology, mm-hmm. and we specialized in LGBTQ psychology. So we, it was like. It was like real gay psychology. And, um, but we, um, we needed to do a service project um, through like our degree program. And so she approached me. And so we started running these groups. We cultivated these groups called community action groups. And we did this around 2008, 2009 when a lot of that bullying was happening. And so we did, we worked with youth at the time at the um, Los Angeles LGBT Center through their youth program. We basically gathered a group of about eight or nine kids, and we we used this technique called public narrative, which was developed by this guy at Harvard named Marshall Gantz, uh, G-A-N-Z. Um, you can Google that, and it's a very short, like, eight-page kind of essay about what public narrative is. But what public narrative is is that it's a way of sharing story, and politicians use it. Obama, whether or not you like Obama or not, Obama uses public narrative and that's how he based his campaigns and arguably had one of the best grassroots campaigns ever. But the way it is is that you share a story in three parts, kind of the story of self or your story, and then the story of the shared story, the story of us, and then the story of now or the story of urgency. And so to give you an example of that, I talked to you about how I put pronouns in my, e- in my emails and how it's okay to ask about that kind of stuff and it's a new language. I share with you my experience. Well, then you share, yeah, you know, I try. I don't want to be offensive at all either. I want to try to do something about that and try to be really respectful. Well, now I had, a, I had my story. Now Paula and Matt both have a shared story. And now it's kind of like, what's the story we want to do now or the story of urgency or kind of the story of change? Well, mm-hmm. We want to do something change about it. So maybe like after this, Paula will be like, you know, I think I'm going to put she and her on my pronouns, on my emails. Well, then that's activism. And then we're changing the narrative. And so we started to do that with youth where we had them come in and we talked to them about bullying. And we had them tell their story of bullying and how, why they weren't defeated by it, like why they decided to step up against bullying. And we had them frame it in this story of this, this public narrative story of the story of self, then the shared story, which they all had a shared story, and then the story of now. And so we trained them kind of to be able to say this story and like, we, we trained them over like eight weeks to be able to, they all shared their story and then we worked with each other of changing it and fixing it up and writing it out. And then we got to like two versions where they could tell the story in five to six minutes or they could tell it in one minute. They were just like, bam, I'm really great at telling it. And we did that because sometimes it's like you only have a minute to share your story. And so then we had, we took them and they went into schools in the Los Angeles school district and public and private schools. And they actually, when schools that were having problems with bullying, they went and spoke to the kids from a peer to peer perspective. Right. which was really great. And it's still the program now is being ran by youth. It's still going on. Jess and I aren't even a part of it anymore. So it's great. But the reason I share that story, our story is not, it's not about, Oh, look what I did, but it's more about, I want to tell people that there's using that public narrative story often can be a way of connection for bullies and people that are bullied because what it's about, it's about, it's something, I think the, the first step people can do is talk about it and not just have people, and obviously you want to have safe spaces, but not just talk about it with kids that are bullied and the kids that are bullying, but have conversations usually with intermediaries, but have conversations with those people together that build mm-hmm. understanding. Because what they'll find, studies have shown this and I've experienced it, when bullies and people that are bullied, are, when they speak in a safe space, again, that is monitored so that way, you know, you make sure nothing traumatic happens again. But when that happens, often they find out that they have that shared story. So once they find out they have a connection of a shared story and similar fears, similar, similar what they feel are shortcomings, then suddenly that story of now becomes a story of change because they both, well, I have the same story as this person. And it goes back to what we were talking about earlier with talk shows is that I connect with somebody. I have a, I have a public narrative story of I had grim gay and feeling different, but one of these things, I heard a guy on a talk show talk about his yeah. story. 
Now we have a shared story. And then I'm like, oh, why well, have a shared story? So now I want to do something about it. And that's I want to I want to live my truth and be myself. So for people, I think that the best way, obviously, if you can do it, if you have a support system at school or a church or wherever the bullying is happening, um, address it to people that are higher up because you're you're going to need their support. I think bullying is not it, if it's severe bullying, especially, you know, a lot of people just try to change. We try to focus just on the quote unquote, the victim. Yeah. That's being bullied, but they're not often the ones causing the problem. It's the narrative of the, the person that is doing the bullying and often what they're hearing either from home or from peers or their community. And that's, that's honestly where it needs to be addressed is they realize what they're doing is, is affecting people. That's powerful stuff too. And, and does it seem like most bullies, they're acting from a place of fear and. Oh and yeah. That's I mean, how it's playing out. I mean, yeah, pretty much. I mean, I believe that I believe people live in, you live in love or you live in fear. That's basically right. it. That's kind of the basis for just how we evolve or live as humans. I believe mm-hmm. love, joy, whatever you want to call it, fear, doubt, shame, whatever. It's all the same. Um, and, and like a, how it affects you in a way, but yeah, I think that there is. If we're just bullies, it's just it's through fear. They're either fear of being found out or they're being, you know, some of the most homophobic uh, stories I've heard are, have ended up people that ended up coming out. Mm-hmm. So it really boils down to it. To me, bullying is similar of somebody that is cutting or they're bulimic mm-hmm. or they're um, suicidal. Even that pain, that person is experiencing so much internal pain and they need to release it and they're taking it out of themselves. Whereas a bully, they're experiencing internal pain and instead of taking it out on themselves, they're taking it out on the people they're bullying. Mm. So it really is a, and that it really is about trying to find uh, a way to, to, to um, connect with that person that is bullying. And then sadly though, sometimes that can happen. So then it is about how do we, the, the, my child, my son, my daughter, my, whatever my, who is being bullied, my friend, if they, you know, obviously it, I think the, I guess when I backtracking a little bit, the first thing that you want to definitely do is get support for that person. So if that person's being bullied, then find a support group, find a therapist, find a church group, find just an area, find a place where they feel like they can be themselves. At least just one place where they feel like they, even if it's two people, three people, a chess club, academia, Wherever, find a place where they can be themselves and it's a safe space. And then once you know that they have a safe space, then you can work on connecting between bully and bullied and, mm-hmm. and trying to bridge that gap. And maybe they won't even be friends, but maybe the person that is bullying realizes, you know, they get their own help and then it, it, they're not acting out. It, yeah, it's so tricky, too. I mean, because I, I, there's also all obviously the the story around how we have treated bullies and people that have been bullied, right? Like, mm-hmm. and so breaking through that too and realizing that really the way to treat a bully is maybe with compassion and not, <laughs> not pushing them out to the, I mean, I said margin before, but like not pushing them outside, but like yeah. trying to, to tell them, Hey, I see you. It's okay. Like not what you're doing, but that you are lovable. And exactly. I think, you know, I think it's, it's almost like when you think of like here are things that are happening in our country's prison system and things oh, like yeah. that. The way that we punish people in this country is not working. No. In in all levels. In right. all levels. School, it's just magnified. And with bullying, why it's hard to combat is honestly because it's just it's systemic. Yeah. And a lot of people honestly get overwhelmed or they're lazy or a lot of it's overwhelmed. They see the systemic problem and they feel defeated like they can't change it because mm-hmm. they're trying mm-hmm. to do it on their own. Yeah. So, it, again, it goes back to find people that have your shared story. So if you're a parent and you're really and you don't know what to do about this, find another parent, either through school or through whatever. Find another parent or online who is working, whose child is being bullied as well. Mm-hmm. Then now you have someone you have a shared story with. So you have someone that supports you. Because sometimes you're going to go to school districts or you're going to go to and people are going to deny that the bullying's happening. Because, again, they are overwhelmed by the systemic problem of it and they, it's too much work for them to do it. Or they're underpaid and, over, and understaffed and stressed out and this isn't something they, they need. Up, so they need the support as well. 
Yes, I love that you brought that up because I love. I I don't want to go into Facebook too much, but I feel like oftentimes when people bring up a problem and they're like, "How do I fix this?" and everyone's like, "Well, it's just it is what it is," or you know, kind of whatever that. Uh, I mean, <laughs> like when everyone feels defeated, they're like, "Yep, yeah, can't change anything." So I love that this is. Um, these are steps that anyone could grab onto and start to make. I mean, understanding it's going to be incremental. It's going to be small. It's going to be baby steps. But, like, don't give up just because some of the message back is we're buying into what is already happening. Like, that's not okay. Yeah. No, it's <laughs> not. It's, yeah, exactly. It's uh, maybe just this is on my mind because uh, I went to a Casey Musgraves concert last night in Los Angeles, which if oh, you don't yeah. – she's a country singer. I love her. I actually – I think she's, like, our – I think she's like the millennial version of Dolly Parton. I really think she's that prolific of a songwriter because she writes such amazing lyrics, truly amazing. But she has a song. Um, one of her song lyrics is just says, it is what it is till it's not anymore. Yeah. And I think that's so true that, yes, some things, you know, I'll, I'll never forget my aunt as she dying of cancer in the last like three days of her life. And her father is watching her die. And he just looked at her and said, you know, it is what it is. And in situations like that, yes. But yeah. most instances of life, it, 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 it is what it is until we decide to change it. Casey I love that. Love her. <laughs> love her. Link up Casey Musgrave. Yeah, that is good stuff. Um, I think moving on to, I know from having listened to your show a couple times that joy is a very important word for you um, and that you have related it to a feeling of connection and I'll use the word transcendence. Um what does joy mean to you and how does it play into your life? It's the core of who I, I think of what drives me just mm-hmm. in everything I do when I'm when I'm connected. You know, my, my boyfriend, there's this website called, I think, mindtent.org. And it's like you it's like this little circle made out of brass or whatever. And you put like a word or a phrase on it and you wear it as a necklace or a bracelet or whatever. And it talks about like an intention. And mm-hmm. so he asked me when we, we've been together and it was his first gift to me. He's like. He just asked me, he said, what word is important to you? And the word was joy. So now I actually have a bracelet that um, it says the word joy on it, and I wear it every day. And it reminds me just kind of that is at the core of what drives me to do whatever I need to do in the world. And uh, it's, well, it's getting fixed right now. I broke it. So I'm not wearing it now. But um, <laughs> my joy broke, sugar. It's done. Um, <laughs> You'll get it back. You'll That's get it back. the show. <laughs> yeah. um, you know, joy dies. No, I'm kidding. Um, yeah, it's yeah. I think joy for me is as a kid, I've always had a bigger personality, and I know that about myself. And I'm a loud talker, and I'm a move my hands, and I was just even as a kid, and you know, so many people didn't know what to do with that. My father didn't know what to do with that. People were like. Don't talk so loud. Don't move your hands when you talk. You know, just kind of fit in, fit in, fit in, fit in, fit in. And but really, I never fit in because and and I don't know. I'd like to love to say that being joyful is a choice, um, but it almost seems like it was. It's just an instinctual thing for me. I mean, I'm a person that believes in past lives and things like that, and energetic energy and all that kind of thing. So I don't know if it's just where I'm supposed to be in this life, I, I, you know, it's, I'll never forget. I grew up Catholic in going to church, especially in Sunday school. That's what you, you talk about. God is love and joy and all that kind of stuff. And so I went to a French, this is, I think I was five. I went to a French church and she was Baptist, Southern Baptist. And so they do this thing where I guess Catholics, you know, we'll go to confession and you can confess your sins. Well, People, I remember I grew up used to say, that's weird that Catholics do that. But I remember I went to my friend's Baptist church, and they went up in front of the church and told everybody what they did. And I'm like, well, that's, oh, no. no, that is, no, no, no. That's what a lot, a lot of some Protestants were listening to. They go up and they just spill their gossip to the entire church and ask for forgiveness and repent and all that crap. Wow. But, um, so the preacher, you know me, I want to go up on a stage. He asked people. They like play, you know, the person's playing the organ, like the soft organ music, and people are coming up and crying. And he said, if you've sinned, come up and get the, you know, share your sin and get the, and get the load off your chest and all that stuff. And well, before my mom didn't go, I went with my friend and her mom. Well, she, she told my mom this story. She said, 
I was turned around and I was doing something with Sarah, my daughter. And then I looked and Matt had already headed halfway up there before I could stop him. I, I was going to repent my sins in front of the church where in my head I'm thinking, I'm just going to put on show. Well, so here I am, little kid, I think like first grade. That's what, I, maybe even younger. And so the preacher comes, I come up there and he says, what's your name? And I said, my name's Matthew. And he said, well, Matthew, have you sinned? I said, yes, sir, I have. And he said, well, Matthew, how have you sinned? And I looked at him and smiled and I said, with love and joy. And (laughs) apparently the preacher fell out so much that he had to stop the sermon and like go and collect himself in the back and come out and restart church. (laughs) Because that's all I was taught in Sunday school. So I thought that's what you said. But I, I love that story in that, I mean, I really have, unless somebody is like raining on my parade, kind of like. Unless I've listened to other people instead of listening to myself, just at a very young age, I've been connected with joy. I think that's why I loved Wonder Woman so much is I would see this character. I would see Linda Carter dressed up as Diana Prince, and Diana Prince had to do these certain things and say these certain things. But when she was Wonder Woman, she was happy. This was different superheroes back then. This is before brooding Batman and all this crap. These were just joyful superheroes. Yeah. It's all about Diana Prince was like, I live in truth. It's all about being true to yourself and true to who you are. And so mm-hmm. I felt like I, underneath I was this joyful superhero, and I was just trying to get out of my sh- – of, and, but people kept telling me, no, you need to be Diana Prince. I was like, but I'm Wonder Woman. I'm that person, and, and I feel that. So it's just something that was just ingrained in me. Mm, yeah. I love that. I mean, one of the things that, that uh, guided me was more honestly around that joy is a choice, but – Oh, for sure, for sure. But but something more around, like, when it's a really hard time. Because I think even, I mean, I think I'm also naturally wired to be kind of on and happy. And, huh? like, that was my answer when I was six is, what do you want to be when you grow up? Happy is the answer. Uh-huh. Um, and so I think, but there was something, I mean, in hard times, sometimes I still have to choose it and be like, okay, this is this is a way to get through this. As I know there's joy in there somewhere, and I'm going to keep going for it. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. I think that we again, when when we did that whole public narrative thing. Sorry, so my neighbor's honking the horn. I don't know what's happening. Lord, I live next to a barbershop. It's loud. But um, when they do, uh, when you talk about public narrative, the thing you talk about in getting people to tell, tell the story of self is when they made a choice point, when they made a choice point to change something in their life or how it affects them. And so I love that you bring up choice because that really, I think, is at the root of the difference of despair and and change is you feel like there's not a choice in the situation. And we always have a choice of situation. I mean, I'm um, blanking. What is the book? The man who was, he was the Holocaust survivor and he wrote very famous. Oh, Ellie Weisel? Yeah. If yeah. that man can have a choice yeah. To find joy and love in in the Holocaust, oh, yeah. then because I cause, and I bring that up because here I am as a white privileged male growing up in the in the South, you know, kind of more the top of the food chain, so to speak. Until I came out, then that changed a bit. But so I want to just own that that if somebody's listening to this who's like you know a different race and going, well, they don't know. I'm like, mm-hmm. well, I might not know, but he does. I don't, yeah. you know, that's like. The worst of the worst situations where every choice is being taken away from you and you still have the, the choice to do that. So mm. I think that, that story empowered me. And also the fact that, again, from watching Oprah, I started writing a gratitude journal when I was in high school. Mm. Yeah. And that was the, I think that book was called Daily Abundance by Sarah Van Bretnaw. Uh, Bretnaw, I can't ever say her name right. And mm. um, But she wrote, again, it's called Daily Abundance, and she does like a workbook journal. And just in high school, I started writing down five things at at the end of the night that I was grateful for. And so that was helpful in that, again, it goes back to, I remember calling my mom, like I'd been in L.A. like three or four years. I was working a second job. I was just broke, like broke. And calling my mom, and it was just a real, like my car transmission messed up, and and. I just I said to her, I said, I don't know, Mom. I said, this is a really difficult time right now, but I feel like I feel like I need to be grateful for this because this is going to make when things are better, it's gonna make them so much better. Yeah. Which she said, 
son, you're crazy. You need money. What the hell are you talking about? Um, so my mama didn't get it. Yeah. But I I was lucky enough to not listen to her in that moment. And that is because, you know, that has happened to me. And, you know, I've, I've been like very, I've been on game shows and I've won money on game shows. And it's that having that, being able, that was so much more felt because mm-hmm. I remember the experience and I had, was able to have gratitude in that moment of a really just, I mean, literally, I was just, I was, I mean, I remember there was like a month, thank God my, my work ordered food because between paying for things to move out to California, everything like that's all I ate were like potato chips and nuts. And I would take home food and eat it for dinner because that's mm-hmm. all I could afford to eat, you know, because if my, because my car like needed four new tires, well, that's where all my money went because I had to have a car. So I, you know, I'm so, so grateful for that, that I was able, it, I didn't, I think a lot of times, too, I just want to say this. Um, sorry, I know I'm talking a lot. But uh, when people hear the word gratitude, they're like, oh, well, I need to be grateful. Oh, I need to be happy. No, I wasn't happy that I was eating freaking potato chips for, you know, yeah. five times a day, whatever. I wasn't happy about it, but I was grateful that I had it. And I was grateful that I was able to make a choice to be grateful yeah. and have the wherewithal for that. And and, you know, for some people, chemically, when depression, anxiety, that's what happens sometimes is chemically your brain can't even, why medication sometimes can be helpful for me because you can't even get to that point. Right. But, but I, wasn't, I wasn't happy. I'm sorry. No, I'm not happy. No. <laughs> no. It sucked. But, but you were making a choice. Exactly. That, like, there's room for gratitude even in this hard space. Exactly. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. I think that's a really nice distinction because, yeah, there's. There's that whole more simplistic view. And joy gets a bad rap in this area as well. Is like, it's kind of like positive thinking. And I mean, you got there's more to it than just the happy, happy, joy, joy piece of it, right? Yeah, there's, exactly. There's a depth that's, yep. It, exactly, exactly, exactly. I mean, it gets like, you know, <clears throat> it gives me joy whenever, like my, if my boyfriend and I, we get into a fight and we have a really... I don't like fighting, um, but we have a really great conversation that we develop understanding in one another. And then we come out through it with the other side mm-hmm. feeling connected. Well, I'm joyful for that situation, like because it man, it because me joy, too, is about that feeling that happens in my chest where I just feel it revert. I just feel like I mean, I feel it now, even in talking to you. It's just like mm-hmm. it's tingling in my chest and it almost goes out through my arms. Which to me, as somebody who does Reiki and all that kind of hippy dippy stuff, but um, it makes it, it's it's really I guess joy and connection are almost the same word for me because when I feel connected to people, to my community, to my environment, then I feel also joyful many times. Mm, yeah, I love that, and I think that's a nice nice takeaway too. If somebody's feeling isolated, not happy, unjoyful, whatever that looks like is maybe either it, it might be connection for them, but like, what is it? What is it that your soul yearns for? Yeah. That could get you back towards joy or happy or content. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. Mm. This has been so much fun, Matt. I have oh. really, really enjoyed it. Do you have time for the last couple questions? Oh yeah, sure. Sure. I'm, I'm ready. I'm ready. I love okay. it. Let me, uh, let's see. So, um, what does balance look like for you and how do you maintain harmony in your life? Define maintain. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. <laughs> uh, yeah, you can drop that word out if you want. No. Yeah, I, the question is kind of like, yeah, where, because I think balance gets a bad rap as well. And so that's kind of where this may be headed. But like, or why I love the question is like kind of questioning what, what is balance really for people? Well, I love that. As, again, as a narrative therapist, we use lang- we believe language defines your reality. So we're always asking when somebody says a word, we, I want to know the client's definition of that, not mine. Because mm-hmm. then that informs how we talk about it uh, in a way that is supportive for them. Uh, and so for me, balance is... For me, a lot of the word, when I think of the word balance, it's saying no, because I'm just, that's the thing. I know it's cliche, but that's the thing I work on a lot is saying no um, and defining boundaries. So I think, at least for right now, you know, I think in finding harmony and kind of balance in my life, I don't know if I've, I don't know if I'm there yet, 
But I also don't know in 30 years if you ask me this, I think that's the point. I would still say I'm not there yet. I, so then maybe the balance is I'm just trying to trying to always look for things that create that could create whatever balance is, you know, because I feel like emotionally I'm really good about working through stuff and, you know, I've got a lot of my ducks in a row, but, you know, still like I hate working out, hate it, hate it. I eat okay, but like, you know, I, I just, it's a struggle for me. I, and my boyfriend is much, I don't, I guess he's into chubby ginger guys because he's like really fit and into fitness and all that kind of stuff. And so it's been good to having him and kind of, support me in a very loving, supportive way of like, hey, this is about your health and things like that. So that's, I feel like a new frontier for me where I feel like for the first time I'm starting to take walks and do things for my health, not because I feel like I need to have abs like all the guys in West Hollywood do, you know, because I go there and I'm like, Lord, I feel like Jabba the Hutt. So, (laughs) oh, yeah. So, but so, so yeah, I don't really, I don't know the answer to that. I think as far as balance, I think Again, it's like when I feel connected, maybe is when I have more balance is when I feel because connections, honesty for me, like I'm really big about being truthful, not just in life, but truthful with myself. And we talk about on our podcast all the time. I always say hashtag truth talk. Let's get to it. And so it's when I have those moments of truth talk with myself, I think that I feel more balanced. Wow. That, yeah, I like I like that a lot. And I think that's a different vantage point on balance because lots of times it's, you know, how come how much can we juggle and. And how can we cram everything that's coming our way into a day? And, and, and I love that you're pulling back from that and saying, well, connection and truth talk and like I suck, other things. I suck at multitasking and I own that. I'm fine with that. <laughs> yeah, I'm a recovering project manager, so I pretend mm-hmm. I, I'm, I'm over it now, but I used to be very good at pretending I could multitask. But yeah, then things come crashing in. It's bad. Yeah, yeah. no good. Where can people find you if they want to, to follow your journey? Yeah. yeah, for sure. So you can go to DearMattyShow.com. That's the website. Uh, and it's M-A-T-T-I-E, Dear Maddie Show. Cool. I will oh, link yeah. all of it yeah. up in the show notes, too. And then our last question, yeah. what are three ways that you can think of to jumpstart joy in your life, in the world, or in other people's lives? Number one, listen. Listen, listen, listen. That's the best training I got as a therapist was listening to people, true empathetic listening. So one, listen to people, and that will inform the way you would take action. Uh, number two, for jumpstarting joy, uh, so listen to them. And I'm, maybe I'm going to have a theme, but I also feel like it's uh, listen to yourself. Mm. You know, I, before I got in business with this business partner that went sour and all that, I was looking at it a uh, kind of gratitude journal journal and in it I put I want to start a podcast and I Mm -hmm. just got away from that so and again it's about really listening to myself without fear Um, and then I think another and so the third kind of I mean I guess bookmarking from the start would be find your muse so Mm -hmm. are you fine you know some people say find your joy and that might seem hard for people because they're like well find my joy that seems like an abstract thing well find your muse so find the thing that like really makes you because everyone's artistic whether people say oh i'm not artistic well and i don't mean that you can draw or you can paint but like my boyfriend is artistic and like you know i've met pat flynn from entrepreneur on fire Mm. he is artistic in that he is a passion for something and he created something from this passion so it's about find a passion and that might not be what you make money from but it might but it's still as i tell many actors that they're struggling auditioning and being saying no and saying no but if you're doing something in your life that connects you to your passion, it's okay. The rejection doesn't hurt as much. The, the, the roadblocks that you hit in life aren't as bumpy because you still have that joy that's kind of just for you to experiment with and live in. Mm. Yes. Thank you. You're, no, thank you. I love it. <laughs> I, I can't wait, wait to have you on my show because it's oh. happy, sugar. Yay. <laughs> thank I'll you, able, Matt. I'll be able to cuss. It's been so hard not to drop a bomb in the show. Thank you so much, Matt, for being on the show. I just feel so lucky to have had you on. And thank you for all the amazing things that you're doing. To get all of the links or find out more about Matt and his podcast, you can go to the show notes at jumpstartyourjoy.com slash episode 60. 
Once you're on the site, be sure and sign up for my free email course called Joy Plus You. And that's where you'll get the three weeks of tapping into your own joy. And you'll also get invited to my own private Facebook group called Joyfully You. And it's all about other ways to jumpstart your joy. So next week on the podcast, in episode 61, I'm going to be doing a solo cast on the things that you can do instead of getting depressed or overwhelmed about the current presidential campaign. I'll be talking about what you can do in the face of chaotic and uncertain times to stay grounded and happy and joyful and upbeat and what you can do to feed into the greater good of the world. So I hope you guys will come on back for that one. Um, And until next week, I hope that your days are filled with so much joy.